Hey everybody, what's up? It is Friday, June 18, 2021. Welcome in to another episode of Real Sports Talk by Naraj. Hope you're all doing well. Looking forward to the weekend. Whew, a lot of things going on across the sporting world. And man, with this nice weather, just some days are just like going by quickly. And you know, you start thinking about all these different things that you can do in the summer. And then, you know, things just kind of change up on you. So... You know, just going through all those things. But I want to kick off today's episode by recapping game six between Milwaukee and Brooklyn. And then I'll get into yet another NBA coaching news, which we I didn't see it coming. I did not see it coming. And man, there are so many open coaching uh, spots now in the NBA. So a whole lot of change is coming. And it's going to be really interesting to see how it all, how it all shakes out. So let me start with the Milwaukee Bucks and them forcing Game 7 against the Brooklyn Nets last night with the 104-89 to victory. The Bucks definitely answered the bell in this one, you know, after Kevin Durant's historic Game 5. You know, you kind of felt like James Harden was going to be able to, uh, you know, bounce back from a, you know, a game in which, you know, with that hamstring injury, James Harden played much better in Game Six, uh, but it was not enough. It was not enough to get past Milwaukee. As uh, the Bucks came out really strong, really strong from the get-go. Chris Middleton with a career high, playoff career high of 38 points. You had Giannis with 30 points, 17 rebounds, um, and Drew Holiday uh, also with 21. And the Bucks were able to win this game. What they absolutely needed to win, um, you know, and it was a game of runs. You know, both teams definitely uh, went on different runs throughout the game. You saw the Nets go have a 9-0, 10-0 run. You had the Bucks do that, uh, but ultimately the Bucks in the fourth quarter had a 14-2-0 run, uh, which put away the Nets uh, pretty much put the game out of reach. And I mean, the energy that the Milwaukee Bucks spent defensively really showed. I mean, Tucker was trying to get on Durant all the time. You saw different guys measuring Kevin Durant. Even Giannis took on the challenge of, of guarding KD on a couple of possessions, trying to close out on, on, on his on his shots. And KD, as good as he was uh, throughout this game, he missed, obviously, you know, he was 15 of 30 from the floor and 2 of 8 from 3 points in line. So, you know, Durant, obviously, a couple of misses. Uh, and they really showed up in the fourth quarter as, you know, he tried to get the Nets back in this game and it wasn't falling for Kevin Durant and the Nets. And the Bucks took advantage of that, pushed the pace a little bit. You saw Giannis have a nice stare down dunk against Jeff Green, you know. But overall, uh, the Bucks just were able to be much better in some defensive spots against Harden and uh, KD which allowed them to get to get to a lead and like pretty much whenever the Nets had an answer and were kind of coming back and cutting it down to like 12, 9, 8, the Bucks always scored. They always scored and kept it out of reach. And that was what the difference was in the game for sure. You know, you look at Kevin Durant, obviously just playing the best of his ability. I mean, he was hitting shots still, despite the defense that was thrown at him. Thrown at him. Although he had, you know, seven turnovers, which is, you know, usually high number for him to have. So you saw a lot of, you know, 
unforced errors by the Nets. I mean, the, the Bucks were active because of their hands. They got a lot of steals, a lot of, a lot of ones that they didn't allow the Nets to run the pick and roll as much. So you saw much better effort from Milwaukee in terms of being able to ch- try to challenge Durant, keep him in check, not let anybody else get going. Uh, and that's what happened because Jeff Green didn't have a big game. Jeff Green, who scored 27 points in game five, you know, had a very quiet afternoon, a quiet night yesterday. Uh, he didn't, wasn't hitting his shots. Blake Griffin, not much from him either. And, you know, pretty much it was just Durant and Harden doing things. And Harden played relatively much better. You saw him get to the lane, get some buckets. Although there was one play which I felt like, man, there he, there he goes again, flopping for, so he can get free throws. <laughs> but, you know, things with Harden is that, you know, whenever he goes and draws contact, you know, it's all about the kind of, you know, closing out on the shooter. You know, there was one three-point attempt where he had in which, you know, the closeout wasn't great and he got the foul shots. The other one, he pretty much, if, if everybody watched what I saw, this is one three-point attempt that he tried to do with Giannis. And he just kind of went down, like, by himself, you know. You got a hamstring injury, man. You got you to gotta stay, uh, you got to do better than that. But, you know, he had his spots here and there where, you know, obviously hard not 100%. Um, but, you know, he is out there trying to make it happen. And, you know, there was some good spots for James Harden in that game where he scored other spots. He just didn't have, the, didn't have the burst. Didn't have the burst to finish. And, look. It is postseason time. He's coming back from a hamstring, uh, but you know, there were just some spots where you felt like he could have done a little bit more in terms of just protecting the basketball because he has some turnovers as well, which you rarely see from James Harden. So you know, but the Bucks' defensive energy was great. They out rebounded the Nets, 51 to 39. Uh, you saw Chris Middleton just get to his spots, you know, hit a lot of good shots, um, and he really set the tone, you know, he, he brought his best, and so the Bucks just, you know, not neither team actually played well from the three-point line, but the Bucks were the better team in the paint, better team in the paint, and the Nets obviously just could not sustain enough defense to a point where they made it close to get Kevin Denner to take over, you know, so it was a great game overall, the Bucks definitely... Uh, showed up and played a really good game. Never, never let the Nets get too close in this game. Um, and they kept the pressure. You, know, you got to give credit to Mike Budenholzer for, uh, you know, pushing the right buttons overall. And they were able to really keep the Nets, um, you know, down pretty much in the entire game. Until, you know, it got, got close a little bit. Uh, but you saw the Bucks just play much better. Giannis, obviously being able to attack and go after it. It was good to see him do that because, you know, he definitely had to. And now we got game seven between the Nets and the Bucks on Saturday night. Should be epic. Um, you know, obviously win or go home situation for both teams. And you know, we're going to find out a lot about Kevin Durant and Giannis. I mean, what a battle it's going to be in game seven. Uh, considering how things are and you know, just looking at what the, the Nets are kind of up, up, up against. You know, you have a situation where James Harden, if he is, you know, if he can play like the way he played yesterday, 
if they can get some stops and get some turnovers on Milwaukee, uh, you know, things might be a little bit different. But, you know, what's really happening with the Nets in their losses, you see, to Milwaukee is that, you know, you have Jeff Green, Blake Griffin uh, scoring but not scoring as much. And it's affecting them because they're not getting that outside production. When Kevin Durant draws double team, you know, guys like Landry Shamit aren't hitting that. So Joe Harris is struggling. Um, but, you know, if there's any game that those two could wake up, it would be game seven. And that's the key is that the Nets are going to need it just more than Kevin Durant to win, I think, game seven. Now, game five, obviously, you saw what Durant did do. And he may come out doing the same thing in game seven. But Milwaukee, the way they have played uh, throughout this series, you know, it wouldn't be a surprise if they tried to, you know, because there were a lot of moments yesterday where there's a lot of, you know, physical, physical play. A lot of physical play that the Bucks tried to put on Kevin Durant and James Harden. And so, you know, can the Nets respond to that physicality? It's a question. And I think that Kevin Durant is going to get to his spots. He's, he's going to drop 30-plus points again in Game 7. question is, will James Harden, will Jeff Green, will Blake Griffin, will any of those guys rise up to the occasion with him and put on a show as well? That's the key for the Brooklyn Nets in Game 7. As for the Milwaukee Bucks, Chris Middleton and Giannis Drew Holiday, they've got to be all on top of their game. you got to see them do the same thing they did in Game 6, uh, be able to attack and do certain things. Now, obviously, the one thing that keeps making the Nets annoying in this series is James, uh, is, you know, one thing that bothers the Nets and a lot of NBA fans right now is Giannis' free throw line routine. I mean, it takes him forever to shoot a free throw. Um, but, you know, coming down the stretch of, of Game 7, you know, if the Milwaukee Bucks are going to be able to win, they're going to have to make free throws. And Giannis may be at the center of that. So, I, it's, it's going to come down to how well can the Nets, you know, keep Milwaukee right where they want to keep them and, you know, let Katie take over. But for the Bucks, like, for this Game 7, look, everybody expects Kevin Durant to be all-worldly in Game 7. You know, there's no reason why he wouldn't be. You know, usually whenever he's coming, coming up a loss, he found, finds a way to bounce back. You know, so I think that Kevin Durant's going to do his thing. I think Giannis will do his thing. It's about the supporting cast for the Milwaukee Bucks and the Brooklyn Nets. Which supporting cast is going to be able to hit more shots and get good production from the bench? That will be the key in Game 7 for both teams. I still have a Nets winning in seven games. I'll stand by that. I think that Kevin Durant's not going to let the Nets' hopes end in a Game 7 against Milwaukee. I believe KD will be ready to go, and I think he will be the one leading us to the victory. The only caveat is that if the Nets get behind again, you know, and if Milwaukee has a big lead in this game, can they sustain it? Because in Game 5, we know what happened in the second half. So that's what I'm looking to see is that how do these two teams start off and play each other, and who finishes stronger in the second half, KD or Giannis?
So in this segment, I want to talk about another NBA uh, coaching news out of the association that really was surprising uh, to hear come out, and that was that Rick Carlisle of the Dallas Mavericks um, is resigning as the Mavericks head coach after 13 seasons with the, with the team. Rick Carlisle has been one of the most respected and long-tenured NBA coaches um, in the league for, for a while. And, you know, this is something that was not coming, I think, in, in most people's eyes because you saw what the Dallas Mavericks were able to do in the postseason, you know. They did have a 2-0 lead against the Clippers, and then it all kind of went south after that, you know. So it's coming. It's coming down to you know how do the Mavericks want to proceed in the future? Because look at the Mavericks. I mean, they have Luka Doncic, a superstar, ready to sign a super max contract in the off season. And this decision by Rick Carlisle was obviously his only. And I think something to do with it obviously had to do with the fact that earlier team president Donnie Nelson step down you know and after 25 years I think that definitely played a role in Rick Carlisle's decision to kind of step away from the Dallas Mavericks you know the Mavericks have had some kind of front office like changes but there's, there's been a power struggle you know there's probably some new guys and there's one particular person that forget his name but basically you're seeing a lot of you know personnel decisions and things changing along a lot of NBA front offices and with the Mavericks, it felt like that Rick Carlisle, you know, obviously he was so tremendous in Dallas for a number of years, being able to take this roster into the postseason. Um, but, you know, times are changing now. We're live in front offices, want new innovative ideas, new changes to bring something different to the Dallas Mavericks. And you look at the Dallas Mavericks, they've had a lot of first-round playoff exits in, the, in these past four to five years. You know, Rick Carla led the team to an NBA title in 2011 along with Jason Kidd, you know, Dirk Nowitzki. And it is possible that you know, Rick Carlisle probably wanted to step away from the Dallas Mavericks spot. Maybe it was also due to the fact that there's a lot of NBA, um, you know, openings out there. Boston job, Portland is there, you know, you have Indiana, Washington is there. So it could be that Rick Carlisle obviously wanted maybe a different change to his coaching career. I mean, he's had a you know over a 500 you know winning percentage in terms of he's been able to win. I mean, his numbers speak for himself. In terms of his winning career record, you know, he's he's been so great. And I think that Rick Carlisle probably just seen how the Maver- how Donnie Nelson stepped away from the team. Uh, maybe he just didn't want to be part of the new movement that the Mavericks are making in the front office. So now they need a new general manager slash team president, and they need a new coach. And it comes at an interesting time because you saw throughout the year that uh, there was a lot of like tension here and there between Doncic and Rick Carlisle. Now. Both obviously have downplayed it a lot throughout the season, but there are moments where you felt like there was tension between Luca and, and Rick Carlisle, and also you know between some other other members of the Dallas Mavericks, between you 
know, him and Luka Doncic. So, look, Doncic is tremendous at what he does, and obviously he's so great. He's outperformed expectations, you know. And this is more about, I think, you know, Rick Carlisle seeing that, you know, he needs a change probably. You know, he's done a lot in Dallas for a number of years. Um, you know, he obviously will be well missed by Dallas Mavericks, but look at the, the, the recent playoff success that a Phoenix Suns team has had, the Memphis Grizzlies have had, the Portland Trailblazers have had. You know, the problem with the Dallas Mavericks over the years is that they haven't been able to get past the first round. And you got a superstar in, in, in his prime, and, you know, he obviously is going to need more to win a championship. So this is about the Mavericks kind of making a play where they know they need a shakeup, they need a new voice. Sometimes that happens over the years, you know, players depending on, you know, where they come from or where they've been with the team, sometimes a new voice is needed uh, to kind of get the best out of your, uh, your group. And it seems like for Rick Carlisle, as great as he was coaching the Dallas Mavericks, you know, this past postseason experience, I mean, just seeing how things kind of, you know, kind of went out of their favor, I think that really played a huge role in this decision by Rick Carlisle, you know. So the Mavericks have a lot of options to choose for a coach. And, you know, the main thing now is that as of right now, a lot of people are seeing, like, there's obviously a lot of changes in the front office. And, you know, Mark Cuban, you know, where is his involvement in all this? What is he really seeing or not saying? Obviously, there's been tension between Porzingis and Doncic as well throughout the year, you know. So, it comes down to... At this point, how do the Dallas Mavericks move forward and find a coach that can really actually coach Luka Doncic really hard and hold him more accountable, you know, because he is great as he is. You know, there were just times in this postseason run where he didn't play as well or he didn't, you know, make the best decision. So I think that Rick Carla obviously did what he could do with this roster and he couldn't get them past the first round as much. Uh, that comes on to the players as well. So I think the next coach that they do get, they really need to find somebody who really challenges Luka Doncic to be better, especially on the defensive end as well. Um, and, you know, someone who can really get the most out of this roster because they got a lot of really unique young talent on this team. And I think that they need a new coach that can tap the right buttons. And so there's a lot of innovative coaches out there that I did mention in an episode previously. There's obviously going to be more coming in, coming in as the search continues. Um, but a lot of things kind of have gotten a little bit, you know, it's been kind of tough for the Dallas Mavericks this year. From a, you know, PR perspective, they've been in the uh, news quite a bit now with the front office change of Diane Nelson stepping down after a number of years. And then you have Rick Carlisle reassigning, which he is going to be an attractive NBA coaching candidate for any team that wants to pursue him. You know, so Mavericks right now are a tough spot right now because, you know, you have Luka ready to sign a, a new Supermax contract and you got to get the right coach in place, you got to get the right GM in place and this whole front office ideas and stuff that they're trying to do, um, this power struggle, hopefully guys settle into their positions and find a way to be good to go because, I mean, any coach that looks at this Mavericks um uh, you know, head coaching opportunity. I mean, you're going to be working with Luka Doncic, uh, who's been all great so far in his career. And the question is now, you know, can the next coach come in 
and be able to really get along with these players, vibe with these players on a different level than they did with Rick Carlisle. That will be a huge thing to watch out for. I mean, the Dallas Mavericks are going to need someone to really step in and lead this team to much better playoff success, and that's what it comes down to. Unfortunately, for Rick Carlisle, you know, just hasn't been the best postseason success, you know, and I think that is going to be something that, uh, you know, kind of sticks out um, for a while, and obviously a lot of players just not being able to step up in the moments, Luka Doncic and Porzingis, you know, whether the Mavericks move on from Porzingis or not, uh, they definitely need a shakeup in their, in their roster to compete much better in the Western Conference. I mean, like I said, the success that you've seen from a lot of these other teams in the Western Conference, um, you know, it's kind of about pushing the right buttons and having some coach that can really challenge your players and be able to connect with them. And Rick Carlisle, I still think is a good coach and he will get a fair opportunity somewhere else possibly. Um, but for the Dallas Mavericks, and considering that they haven't had much postseason success since 2011, uh, I think that their next coach and their next hire of a GM slash team president is going to be really important. That will play a huge role into what Luka becomes um, in the years to come. segment I want to talk about the latest um, in the NBA and talk about a trade that went down actually which oof, already you're seeing uh, some teams kind of get a jump on their uh, you know salary cap and roster in Boston with Brad Stevens wasting no time in doing that Celtics have traded Kemba Walker to the Oklahoma City Thunder um, in which couple of draft picks are being exchanged although for Oklahoma City they are getting um, you know they're getting you know more draft picks to their capital Sam Presti continuing to rein in picks and I think for this year the NBA draft it seems like now Oklahoma City will have three first round draft picks which is mind-blowing in its own way um, but look at the trade details itself you know Boston gets Al Horford back um, you know, Moses Brown, who's a very solid young player, um, you know, a 2023 20, second round pick. But you look at what the Thunder got, I mean, like I said, they got a first round pick this year. So, Bloom City is definitely obviously rebuilding, looking to hit on these players that they can get in the draft. And if the lottery goes right, they may find themselves right in the top five, you know. So, overall, a great uh, move by. Um, Boston to trade Kemba Walker from the sense that you know they didn't have to they were going to owe Kemba Walker a lot of money over the next two three years and doing so they've kind of lessened it a little bit to the point where they have flexibility now to go out and improve this roster on the bench you know so just look at Boston and what they really did here you know Jason Tatum is obviously a superstar um, and the making here in the NBA, uh, as long as you know, you got Mitchell and you got Devin Booker, and you know, it just came became more apparent over this past year for the Boston Celtics that you know they don't need to 
they didn't really need Kemba Walker, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. It's more that Boston was already, you know, having a solid nucleus of, you know, Jalen Brown, Tatum, Marcus Smart, and with Kemba Walker, the playing time, the injuries kind of really caught up to Kemba Walker, you know, to the point where, you know, he did perform well at times during his tenure in Boston, but other times, fortunately, hit the injury bug couldn't come back and, and play in some big time games and you know Kemba still got it I'm not saying that he's totally done in the NBA just just, just that he may be, be better off coming off as a, as a bench player or being able to you know be in a spot where he can do his thing and be able to be healthy and be able to be effective in that and I think Boston the way they're moving towards kind of shaking up this roster they want to have flexibility so, Kemba Walker was an all-star his first year. Definitely deserved what he did get. Um, but it just became apparent over the over the time here, the injuries and stuff, that Boston was going to move on from him. And, you know, they are in a position where they have the ability to surround some players with some shooting. One of the things that they, they really lacked this year was the you know, presence of a big man. You bring in Al Horford back, who has played with Boston, familiar with the system, familiar with the players. Al Horford, even though he may not be the kind of player that he used to be, he still can provide you some quality minutes and some veteran leadership. So, you know, it is tough for Kemba Walker because, you know, you go to the Oklahoma City team that obviously is young, uh, but it may be a good thing for, for Kemba Walker because you see what Chris Paul was able to do when he went there and what he ended up being getting in Phoenix. So Walker, if he decides to remain with Oklahoma City, um, you know he has a chance to really restore himself a little bit, kind of play not not under too many expectations. Maybe he can get back to being a really solid player. Uh, he is, you know, really good. Uh, it's just that the Celtics probably just want to move in a different direction because you look at what's happened with the Boston Celtics. They're going into into a new new kind of culture, new kind of change, you know. You know, Danny Ainge is not going to be calling the shots anymore. You know, it's Brad Stevens. And Brad Stevens kind of being here for almost like six, seven years, I mean, he kind of knows what he's going to be able to do at this point. And they're going to shake it up probably even more depending on how things go. But, look, Tatum's there, Marcus Smart's there. And got Jalen Brown coming back next year. Uh, they got some interesting players on that roster, and you know, for Kemba Walker, you know, he may find a opportunity elsewhere. Um, you know, Oklahoma City may decide to keep him on board and play. You know, be able to have him, you know, play with this young young roster. You know, but it's clear that both teams have obviously are totally different directions. Boston is trying to shake it up, trying to find a way to get more competitive. Uh, and better as a roster totality. And trading Kemba Walker gives them the ability now to go out there and try to get some other nice shooters and players around Jason Tatum. Um, And obviously with the next coach coming in, you know, making this roster ready enough to coach hard, to give guys to play a certain style, to get more out of them is a key. And so, you know, quite a trade because, you know, you see Oklahoma City kind of getting the draft picks they, they are getting and um, you know Sam Presti has the ability where he can obviously use these draft picks to get so, get a star 
he also has the ability to just draft players and just draft until he, until he hits the right you know prospect and that will be something to watch going forward is where do these draft picks land and you know can Oklahoma City find a way to get back on the map you know as, as a team that can compete for a Western Conference spot to me I think Kemba Walker is best suited stay in the Eastern Conference, you know, I think he would be a good fit uh, on a lot of different teams, uh, but he may have to adapt his game a little bit. He may have to change it up and maybe accept a secondary role and not being a starter anymore. It's very possible that he may have to consider that. Just because, you know, you've seen players obviously start off so well in their career, then get the injuries, get lack of playing time, and there's just so many moments where you fall that like Kemba Walker just came up short. Um... But, you know, he can still give you something when he's out there fully healthy and ready to go. So I hope he finds, a, you know, a good spot in, in the free agency, you know, period. Or if he does end up being on the Oklahoma State Thunder, you hope that he's able to, like, bounce back and have a big-time season so he can, put himself, he can put himself in line for a possible, another big opportunity. But, you know... He's been through those injuries that's really kind of affected the Celtics' ability to kind of, like, stay with him. And now they need a change. Um, and I think that Marcus Smart, who obviously has played a lot of uh, shooting guard, shooting forward, Marcus Smart may assume the starting point guard role. It's probably possible, you know, that it definitely happened. And, you know, how the Celtics kind of, go forward now with their coaching search and how they are able to get more players on this roster will be interesting to watch but I think it's a trade that uh, to me it's a win-win on both sides although for Kemba Walker this kind of sucked because he's going, going from a team that he was contending for in the postseason to possibly not being in, in postseason for some time but you never know he may end up not wanting to play for Oklahoma City and they may end up just kind of trading him anyway so uh, for Walker, he, hopefully he's able to find a way to kind of adapt to this, change it up, find some kind of way to like stay healthy, to be more more productive, um, and get he'll get a fair shot maybe, um, but another team down the road. So it's definitely a move that the Celtics were going to make. I didn't think they would trade Kemba Walker this early into his contract, but like I said, the whole thing has changed. Where you know Brad Stevens is upper in management now um everything with boston is kind of geared towards finding the right coach that can make this talent get back to a conference finals and to the nba finals appearance um and they are going to strive for that and it seems like kemba walker won't be part of that um but you know we're going to find out what boston does in terms of how they maneuver certain pieces around um and we'll, find, we'll, we'll learn a lot about Brad Stevens um, next NBA season in terms of what moves he will make and how this roster will shape up next year when we're back around this time of the year. So in this final segment of today's episode, I want to talk a little bit about the first uh, year head coaches that will be lining up on the NFL sidelines this year. And there's obviously quite a few names 
uh, to talk about. But I'm going to start with a couple that um, I think are really going to be an interesting spot this year. And I'm going to just talk about who may have the better have the better season. So going to do a couple at a time. And for today's segment, I'm going to talk about Dan Campbell of the Detroit Lions and Nick Sarani of the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, both coaches are going into different situations, um, but kind of similar as well. You look at the Detroit Lions, they've had a tough run as of late, just not being able to put forth a winning effort and making the postseason the last couple of years. And for Philadelphia, they've had some shortcomings on their um, you know, on their roster, coaching, the whole thing with Carson Wentz, Doug Peterson kind of, you know, kind of flamed out, and the Eagles have been trying to kind of re, kind of resurrect what kind of offense they're going to have this year and how they're going to be in terms of offense, and, you know, they still have veterans on that group that will, you know, be looking to make something happen in the NFC East, you know, as for the Lions... You know, not much is expected out of the Detroit Lions because of the NFC North and how the Packers are built, you know, Chicago Bears, Minnesota Vikings. Um, so both coaches are trying to change the narrative about how their teams will be this offseason or it's coming NFL season. And, you know, to look at the Eagles first, um, Jalen Hurts, obviously, going to be the starter, most likely. And you got Devonta Smith, Jalen Rager there. You know, and Nick Sarani is coming in as a you know first-year head coach, very young, looking to uh, you know make some things happen there in Philadelphia. Uh, he's got a lot of work to do because there's a lot of roster uh, spots that you have to be determined. And you look at this Eagles team. You know, it comes down to how well is he able to coach Jalen Hurts? Can he get this roster to win? And can he control the locker room? Can he keep these players together? And can they buy into what he's going to be able to do, you know? But they do got some very exciting talent there that, um, you know, is looking to kind of break out this year. And the Eagles are obviously going to be competing as the Cowboys, Giants, or, you know, the Washington football team. Um, so there's going to be interesting storylines throughout this season for the Eagles. For Nick Sarani, I mean, obviously working... In, with the Colts previously, you know, he's going to try to bring a new kind of offense, new kind of dimension to this team. And, you know, it all comes down to quarterback play. It comes down to quarterback play and how well will Jalen Hurts be able to do. You know, he did get a look last year and did shine a couple of moments. Uh, but this is going to be a different season, obviously with more emphasis on, you know, film and kind of, you know, studying these quarterbacks. It's going to be interesting to see how the Eagles really adjust to this. You know, I think more importantly, you know, players that were unhappy with Doug Peterson last year, the ones that were kind of questioning whether or not Carson Wentz should have been kept there or not, you know, can they unite? Can they all get behind Jalen Hurts? You know, can Nick Sarani be able to, you know, talk about certain things and be able to handle handle the media? Because that's one thing that he definitely wasn't able to do early on in his press conference. Um, so, you know, is he going to be able to handle that Philadelphia pressure, the expectations? Um, the good thing for him is that the Eagles have obviously, they still have a defense that 
can be good. Um, you know, at the cornerback spot, they're a little bit, you know, interesting overall. You know, they, they still have, you know, you know, Brandon Graham there. So they're going to try to be just as good as they can be. Uh, but it comes down to Nick Sarani. You know, what I really want to see is how does he handle, you know, handle the game decisions. You know, that's one of the things that the Eagles have kind of been lacking in quite a bit last couple of years. Not saying that Doug Pearson did a bad job or anything, but when it comes down to when it comes down to like poaching and being able to make adjustments, and Nick Sarani has spent time under under Frank Wright, the Indianapolis head coach, and you know, now he's going to be able to go out there. And he's going to make mistakes, no doubt. But the question is, can he put this team in a position where they're scoring points? Can they be effective in big-time games is the question. Because compared to, compared to Dan Campbell, Nick Sarani has every limited experience. Dan Campbell has had quite a bit of experience. You know, I think he's spent... He's been in the NFL for almost 22 years. I think 11 seasons as a player and 11 seasons as a coach. And... You know, it comes down to what kind of things will Nick Sarah need to kind of do. Can he push the right buttons on this Eagles team? Can they be a surprise team this year in the NFC East? You know, that is a big question. You know, and look at the other side with Dan Campbell. You know, Dan Campbell kind of set a uh, very interesting, you know, kind of attitude right from the get-go his press conference talking about biting some kneecaps off and <laughs> trying to like bring back like that kind of like aggressive kind of like style in which he can kind of get his players to be but the Lions haven't fared as well either um, in terms of like playoff success you know they haven't been in the postseason since for a very long time I think been three four or five years almost you know Matt Patricia was supposed to kind of fix the Lions and make them a good team you know, you had that whole Belichick kind of regime. It's kind of similar kind of regime to the Lions beforehand. And you saw Matthew Stafford kind of wanting to kind of finish his career elsewhere. You know, you they lost Kenny Galladay in free agency. Uh, but the Rams did bring... I'm sorry, the Rams. The Lions did bring in, like, a, you know, a GM that has worked with the Rams and is very familiar with Jared Goff. You know, and they have tried to address some of the positions this year on their roster. I mean, the Lions do have some nice pieces. You know, they got a nice tight end, TJ Hawkinson. You know, got DeAndre Swift. You know, Carryon Johnson. Uh, they do got some really solid players that are are going to emerge and get um, opportunities. Question is, you know, who will be that number one wide receiver that they have? And that's the biggest thing is that I don't know if the wide receiving corps of the Detroit Lions are good enough uh, to make a difference this year. They can. They probably can. But it comes down to how well does Dan Campbell push his buttons. Because Dan Campbell has spent time under Sean Payton. He was a tight ends coach the Saints for the past four years. Um, He's kind of served in different kind of roles. Dan Campbell is very aware of a lot of things throughout his NFL career. And and the question is, how is he going to be able to get this defense to be? That's the number one thing. Can he get Jeff Okuda to be a really solid player? You know, can he kind of re-energize this Detroit Lions defense to a point where they can actually, you know, hold their own and be able to win? Um, you know, that's the biggest thing to see with Detroit Lions is 
Are they going to be able to get turnovers? Can Jared Goff find a way to, you know, have a, have a decent season? But for Dan Campbell, you know, he's in a good spot because, of the, you know, just being able to be familiar with a lot of different things that apply his coaching career. You know, he may be able to bring the Lions back to some kind of winning mentality. He's trying to install them just as he can, you know. But they got a lot of work to do in that division because right now the stands, they're not better than the Minnesota Vikings, in my opinion. They're not better than the Detroit, Chicago Bears and the Packers. Um, but it comes down to quarterback play. It comes down to Dan Campbell being able to kind of instill the kind of mentality and the fight that he wants his team to have. He's saying all the right things, but it comes down to execution. And I think that out of these two coaches, between Nick Serrani and Dan Campbell, if I had to pick one coach that will have a have a better have a better season, I'm gonna go with Nick Serrani of the Eagles of the Eagles. And even though he is a young head coach and you know doesn't have as much experience as Dan Campbell. You know, I think that the talent that he has there in Philadelphia, they've been able to kind of address some needs offensively. I think that they're going to be in a much better spot to compete uh, going forward. And I think he'll have a better season because I think, one, you know, he has a quarterback in Jalen Hurts who's looking to kind of prove himself. You know, he's going to install an offense that's going to really be quarterback friendly, hopefully. And I think that... In terms of like the team itself, I think that the Eagles have to kind of clean in house with all that tension between Doug Peterson and Carson Wentz. I think you'll see Philadelphia be much better. Uh, I think they'll win more games than the Detroit Lions. Now, I'm not going to say the Eagles are going to win the division because I don't think that will happen. Uh, I think that they are not going to be as, you know, in, I don't think they're going to be in that position to win the division. But can I see them, you know, doing well on the next run I can. You know, if I put the record aside, in terms of coaching this year with their first season, no matter if it's a winning season or losing season, I think the next run is going to be able to do much more with his roster than Dan Campbell will do with Detroit. That's the way I see it going down. I think that this first season you'll see Nick Sarani be able to do much more because he has some really good talent that, you know, he's looking to prove itself. I think he'll be able to coach better in some spots. Dan Campbell will still do, do good, um, but I think it was a better season. I think the Knicks are running, um, you know, I think he'll have a better first season just because I think that the Eagles are more talented in some areas, and I think that they're looking to really win a lot of games. And all that tension, all that kind of negative thing that they've got since the offseason has ended, I think they'll find a way to, like, at least – be good enough to be relevant to a certain extent in the season more than the Detroit Lions. I think that through the halfway point of the season, I think the Lions won't be in contention as much. I think Dan Campbell will be kind of, you know, dealing with a lot because as good as Jared Goff is, at, you know, at certain points in his career, he just hasn't been that way that lately. I still have confidence that he will be really good, but question is how long do the Lions keep, keep him as their starting quarterback? That, that whole uncertainty of how the Lions kind of manage Jared Goff and the, you know, the whole quarterback situation. This is why I think that Nick Sarani is in a better spot to do well in year one.